I give that a moment to, <clears throat> to settle in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here again today. What a great, um, joyful opportunity to get to gather together. And at the same time, we grieve um, missing each other and not being together. And so, um, Lord, we continue to lift up our world, our nation, um, our leaders, um, as, uh, and one another, especially as we face the, the threats and the challenges and the risks and a lot of times the confusion and the uncertainty uh, in this time. <clears throat> so, Lord, we pray that you, would, um, that you would bless this time this Sunday morning as a reminder to us that, that though we live in a broken and fallen world, and though nature resists us, um, Lord, and though we live in this democratic republic um, that is man trying our best to figure out how to lead one another, fundamentally as believers we are citizens of your kingdom, and that that's where we find our rest, and that's where we find our peace, and that's where we find our identity is in you, um, in the work of your Son, and the power of your Spirit, and that's how we pray these things, amen. All right, so I told you we'd have the, uh, the shirt this week uh, that, uh, that Carly made for me. If you're on a small device, you can't read it. It says, the church has left the building. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, that's appropriate every week, um, every week when we, when we come to this place and we kind of have our holy huddle, our Thanksgiving dinner, and then we spread out into the world and, and uh, impact there. The truth is that the church is always leaving the building, but... Little more, uh, little more truth to that today than normal. And I would also tell you that um, if you have the means, um, <clears throat> and this is some, a place where you are that you're comfortable enough to do this, if, if you are not in the, in the habit of giving, um, worshiping through giving, then you can do that on your webpage, uh, on the church's webpage, if you jump up and do that. If you are someone who is starting to face the challenges, the extra challenges and the struggles especially of um, financial need during this time, don't hesitate to get in touch with us here at the church um, so that we can reach out. We have a line of people just looking for an opportunity to help, and uh, they'd love to do that. All right, so let's talk about authority. Here we are in Daniel chapter 2, and I want us to have a conversation about authority, even just conceptually, philosophically. We have a story, one of these great accounts in the book of Acts, where Peter and John teaching about the resurrection of Jesus in the temple. Um, the Sadducees aren't pleased with this. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, and so they're upset that they're disrupting, in their opinion, disrupting the, the peace, the kind of comfortable coexistence that had come into existence between the Pharisees, who did believe in the resurrection, and the Sadducees, who didn't. And, and the, Peter and John are kind of messing all that up as they're teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And so they, the Sadducees get them arrested, and some of the names um, we know from the crucifixion show up and, uh, and begin to try or confront these two apostles. And Peter answers them in this way. Um, when they don't have good answers as to why they should stop, and Peter then gives this answer in Acts 4, 18-21. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. But Peter and John answered them. Quote, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Here we see James and John, Peter and John 
directly defy their governing authorities. That seems odd. There's some principles that we can learn, that we can take away about the concept of authority that I think is very important. The first and most important rule always of authority, this, this cosmic concept that God put into place called authority, is this. You always obey the highest authority. That's, that's the number one and most maybe most important rule of the concept of authority. You always obey the highest authority. Some of you have heard me do this. Paul's probably heard me do this a thousand times, this description. But when we taught young men, they really often, this was a very difficult concept for them. And so, especially in a world where people aren't drafted anymore and people in, in work environments no longer have a strong sense of authority, there's often this difficulty that you say if you're a private in the military and a sergeant tells you to give to stop and, and give him a bunch of push-ups and you're doing push-ups, you do push-ups. Well, what if it doesn't make any sense? You do push-ups. What if it's irrational? Well, then you do push-ups. Well, what if it doesn't, what if, what if it, it's, it's the, the reasoning behind it is mean? Well, what you do is push-ups. And, but if a lieutenant comes along and says, hey, private, stop doing those push-ups, well, then you stop because a, a, the lieutenant outranks the sergeant in that situation. That's you answer to the highest authority, and the sergeant can turn to you and say, like, I said do push-ups, but if the lieutenant's standing there saying not, you listen to the highest authority, and then if the major comes along and says, no, you should do push-ups, then you, then you do them, no matter how big a fit the lieutenant throws, and then if the colonel shows up and says, no, don't do them, then you don't, and the general says, do them, then you do. Like, the highest authority, this is the most important rule of the concept of authority, and it's a difficult one sometimes for Americans, especially Texans, um, to do this. And so, and it's interesting because even where we are as Baptists, a big part of what we as Baptists claim, sometimes take pride in, but claim, is that each of our churches is independent. There's no governing authority over our churches. And so, again, so if you add Baptist, American, and Texan into the same thing, you've got a group of people who authority is not their biggest favorite concept, right? And yet, this is an important concept. It's very important for us and this is one, we always obey the command of the highest authority in any given situation. However, as the push-up analogy shows, we're obligated to do the word, we're obligated by the word of God to follow the governing authorities that we have unless they do contradict a higher authority. Look, listen to Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And this isn't merely about spiritual authorities. The Apostle Peter makes that even more clear. In 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. This is a tough concept for us, and it's been funny to me throughout the years that sometimes when I teach about this in a smaller crowd, someone will say like, yeah, well, I mean, they didn't have to deal with the kind of authorities we have. Well, that's true. Um, who they had was, for example, the emperor Nero, um, who was a madman. And no matter how much, how badly opinion you have of our current president or our current Congress or our current senators or our current judges or whatever, they haven't yet started crucifying people and setting them on fire to be light sources for their dinner parties. That's the kind of, stunt, kind of thing Nero did. And so understand when, when Paul wrote this, when Peter wrote this, they're dealing with governing authorities 
that, that make ours, even in their worst moments right now, seem like, like a Girl Scout camp. I mean, it, it is, it's nothing compared to even the, what they faced on a regular basis. And so for us to say, it's right for us to seek to honor the governing authorities. It's in a democratic republic like we have. It's challenging enough, and especially since our highest authority is a document, that creates even more challenges for us as we wrestle through this whole thing of what does that document give this person that power to do. And listen, we're going to be wrestling through that. We have been for a couple hundred years. Hopefully, we will be for a long time into the future. There always is. However, cultures, governments, etc., cannot keep us from ministering because that is a call from the highest authority, from God Himself. We wrap our minds around this idea that Jesus gave specific instructions in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give you. This was to his apostles, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The really good news is you can follow Christ's command to love one another no matter what type of quarantine situation we're in. Um, Christians found ways in concentration camps to love one another, in prisoner of war camps to love one another. We can, they do it, they, they love one another all the time in an appropriate way in, in all settings. And as Christians, we can do this until we master loving the people we do have access to in the ways that we do have access to, um, that we don't have anything to complain about yet. Because our God gives us a command to live these things out and follow Him. Have I mastered loving the people that I do have around me, my family, my friends, my neighbors, even if I can't be around all the other people? This is the concept of authority, is that we always answer to the highest authority in any given situation. If what we're asked to do by someone in governing authority does not contradict what God has called us to do, then we do it. If a higher authority um, has a different view, then we have to go with the higher authority all the way up to God himself, who is our highest authority. Fundamentally, we are part of a monarchy. We live in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is our king, and his instructions through the power of the Spirit are what we're supposed to live out. That's the highest authority. If, the, if what we're asked to do in other authority settings does not contradict that, then we follow those. This is wonderful advice for kids as teenagers and kids learn this, it was one of the most amazing things that when God revealed that to me, helped me understand this when I was a young man and realized my job was to respond to his authority. And if what my parents asked me to do or told me to do, even if it seemed unreasonable or irrational to me at that age, and most things that parents ask you to do when you're 16 or 17 seem irrational or unreasonable, am I right? And so it's, it's not, you'll know that someday, but if it seems that way at the time, that then allows us to respond to that authority positively, unless they tell us to do something that directly defies God. If, you're, if your parents tell you to go steal something for them from the grocery store, no, you don't, you don't do that. You obey God. And you may face consequences. That's kind of rule number two, which we won't get, get a lot of attention on. Rule number two or rule number three is following the highest authority may still cost you something. It's an unjust world. And that's important for us to know, but we don't have time for that. Instead, what we're going to do is consider Daniel, and you're going to see that what I just shared about was very intentional when it comes to this account that we're looking at at Daniel. We are going to see that principle lived out over and over in Daniel's life. And as we, as exiles, so to speak, as we living in a culture that is less and less friendly to the Christian culture to the Christian philosophy, to the Christian worldview, as we live in a culture that is less and less friendly to that, 
one of the things that we still have to stand by is this belief, is this understanding that human government has not earned, human authority has not earned, but that God has instructed there, at least in these two passages and in multiple others, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that we obey the governing authorities. And the only way we would get out from that or that we wouldn't do that is what Peter and John showed us, and that is if they are directly in defiance of God's instruction to us. Incidentally, both Peter and John paid for that. Now, consider Daniel. Daniel is essentially an ambassador in Babylon by force. He did not choose this. Um, As we become Christians, we are ambassadors within our culture by the fact that we have accepted the free gift of the name of Jesus Christ, of being adopted into his family. He's going to handle this weird situation of facing multiple layers of authority with grace and valor and nobility and power. We answer, just like he did, to a different authority, a higher authority, though we still respect the authority of the world because God has told us that he's the one who puts that authority in place. Remember, it is God who sent the Babylonians to conquer the Israelite nation. We are strangers. This isn't our home. In a sense, we're exiles too, whether there's a disease or not. Finding ourselves in this country against, in his country against his will as representative of the God of Israel in Babylon... <coughs> without a choice in the matter. Now he's being trained to be a wise man in that pagan culture, in that pagan kingdom. He's been stripped of body. He's been stripped of language, of home, of family, and even of his name. And in the midst of his training, now Daniel is in trouble. Um, I believe he and his friends are still in their training time, um, but they're about to get caught up in the failure of the advisors of Nebuchadnezzar when the king dictates the death of all the wise men. I'm going to give you the quick, short version of that, but, if, but in order to hear it, you need to go back like three weeks and hear Paul teach through the beginning of this account. Um, seemingly minding his own business, suddenly soldiers show up to execute the young wise men in training, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Daniel wrangles a reprieve for he and his friends, but not long. So Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream. Um, having this dream, he wakes up and he is troubled, distraught. Again, Paul unpacked that for us a few weeks ago. And, and he's distraught and he wants to understand what the dream means, but he's not convinced that his wise men aren't going to just make stuff up. That it's like going to someone and telling them what the dream is and them going, oh, that dream means this. And you're like, really? How would you know that? Um, I've always thought what I wanted to do, like I was always tempted, one of the churches where I worked, there was a psychic who actually spelled it physic um, uh, above on the sign above her place said, physic and card reading and palm reading. And so, um, and so <clears throat> we, we always wanted to go in, and I always wanted to go in and say, tell me why I'm here. If you get that part right, then I'll pay you and sit down. Um, but if you can't tell me that part, then, then I'm not going to, because after all, you're a physic, I mean psychic. And so, and so this, this picture, Nebuchadnezzar has the same fear. He's going to tell them what he had at a dream, and they're going to make something up that sounds good, and, and then he's going to like not know if that really was any insight or not. So Nebuchadnezzar decides to form to, to do a scientific experiment. He's kind of the original James Randi, uh, if you know who that is. And so he's going he's to run this experiment. He goes, first, you tell me what the dream was, and then I'll know you have special insight into what the dream means. Well, they don't, and they can't figure out what the dream was, and they throw a big fit about it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, my resolve here is firm. You're going to tell me what the dream was. In fact, not only are you going to tell me what the dream was, or I'm not going to let you interpret it, you're going to tell me what the dream was, or I'm going to have you torn limb from limb. And so they panic, and they can't figure it out. And so he's about to have them all killed. 
And then we get this, Daniel runs into one of the guards, apparently, who's going out to kill wise men, and Daniel runs into him. Daniel talks him into waiting, and we get verse 17 of chapter 2. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel goes to his friends, and together they seek mercy from God. This, this is so, such a teachable moment that I can't even walk past this. Step one to any solution. This is what I wrote. Step one to any solution <coughs> to a problem, seek God's mercy. Seek the extraordinary mercy of a God who is already extraordinarily merciful. The language here in the Hebrew, the depths of his tender mercy, is what they're seeking out here. But then I realized, that's not really step one. Step one is engendering the discipline of integrity, an attitude of prayer, and a group of intimate friends who you can then know to go to and pray with, and that's your instinct, is to pray like that. It's, it's so easy for us to get distracted in problem-solving and solution-seeking that we don't, we don't stop. And part of that's because we're in that mode, and it never dawns on us. We never deliver, we never create the the, the right type of attitude so that when the moment comes, we know what to do. Um, years ago, I did a sermon talking about how this was so important, and I've, I think I've talked about it here as well, <coughs> that there's certain decisions we make before the moment comes. Um, and we'll talk more about that maybe in a minute, but if you've not decided not to cheat on your spouse at some point, if you've not made that decision and really made that decision, then, then there's a really good chance you're going to. Um, the, the standard that comes to me that seems like the ultimate of this is like the secret service um, and I showed one time the video of when Reagan was shot, and uh, there's a, a Secret Service officer, who, officer whose last name is Clinton, no relation to the president, and, and it shows in four seconds that, that as the gunman shoots four rounds out of the gun, within that four-second period, if you slow it down, what you have is a man who's standing there, uh, this, this Secret Service agent on his walkie-talkie, and then the first bullet rings out, and you can see in slow motion as his head comes up, and then by the fourth bullet, he's standing spread eagle between the gunman like this, he's holding the walkie, and the president doesn't reach for his gun, just spread eagle, and the fourth bullet hits him, and he catches a bullet for the president. That's his instinct. I promise you he did not at that moment go, okay, am I really going to do this or not? At that point, it was way too late to make the decision. That was a decision that had to be made before. The decision to pray when we're in a crisis feels to me like one of those decisions that we have to make before the crisis comes. Um, I think it's part of why my instinct is to act rather than pray. Is it, I, have, I don't have that decision firmly in hand as I should. So here we have, he makes that decision. He has the type of friends um, to do this with. One of the commentaries that uh, <coughs> Paul McKenzie saw indicated that in some way this was the first communal prayer of the Bible. Um, it, at least, it, I, I, we were debating that, whether that maybe is accurate or not, whether that commentary got that right, and it kind of depends on what you count as communal and what you count as prayer. But um, here it feels like a pretty good indicator. At least it's the first student ministry small group, right? I mean, we can at least go with this is the first student ministry small group, and they get together, and they pray, um, and they're going to pray together. This is, this is pretty, this, so they pray, and they go to bed, or maybe they pray throughout the whole night, it doesn't say. Either way, at some point in the night, Daniel is given a vision. Um, now, if you've not listened to the podcast from Friday, the in-between podcast, we talked about dreams and visions and mysteries and stuff on there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. 
Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. By the way, older versions, this just struck me, it's a modern day funny thing. Older versions say, revealed it to Daniel with night vision. Um, and, and so I, was, I immediately pictured, you know, like a sniper or something with night vision goggles. Like that's how God revealed it. So I'm glad they changed that for the more up-to-date version. A vision of the night. Um, so here's, here's step two. So step one that we need to do is to any solution is to seek God's mercy and to have the, all the right things in place to be prepared to seek God's mercy, honestly. But then we have the mystery revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Step two. This is one we're terrible at. Um, I think culturally we're terrible at it. I think probably our church culture is that we're not very good at it. We talk about this as a staff all the time, and it's so hard to remember to do this, and that is to thank God when he acts. Um, we've talked about how we will get up and give announcements. Here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're going to do, and we forget, and we forget, and we forget, and we forget to come back and tell people this is what God has done. And so very few times do we come back and say, like, here's what our announcements were last week, and here's what God did with that during the week. Um, it, it's, a, it's a bad idea. We know it's a bad idea. Everyone, for us to learn to talk about those things would be vitally important. Here's what's wild. There's something of a time crunch here. And I mean a serious time crunch, as in Arioch, in a minute, we're going to see Arioch take Daniel to the king in haste. The, the guards are worried about this. They're about to kill all of the wise men of the kingdom. There's a time crunch here. We've got to get to this. Daniel now has the answer that will quiet Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, that will still the risk of death on all of them. But Daniel doesn't have time to rush to the king First, he has to write a poem for God. And by the way, this poem follows a Hebrew pattern. We see it in multiple places like Psalm 41 and Nehemiah 9, which would indicate that if Daniel, in fact, as I think this indicates, wrote this poem and wrote this prayer here and now at this moment, early in the morning after he has this vision, then that tells us that Daniel took the time to write a poem carefully, intentionally, to write this prayer, this, this song of praise to God intentionally. And, and again, <laughs> what an amazing thing that he doesn't have time to rush straight to Nebuchadnezzar because first he has to thank God and to do so seriously. So here's what we get starting in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And you have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter." Let that sink in. Danny wants to take the time and praise God just for being God. And for not just being a God, but for being the God. The God who's over all the other stuff. Remember, Daniel's being raised now and has probably spent several years, maybe already, being raised and trained in this pagan, the last couple of years in Babylon, in this pagan world. He's going to seminary class every day, but it's Babylonian seminary. 
He's memorizing scriptures, but it's Babylonian scripture. He's learning languages, but it's Babylonian and pagan languages. And he's going to stop and come back and say, this is, this is the God who sets up kings and takes them down. He's the God of wisdom and mysteries and understanding. He's the God over all these things. He's the God over Marduk, and he's the God over Nebo, and he's the God over all of these, and he's the God over the very Nebuchadnezzar that I'm about to be dragged in front of, whether Nebuchadnezzar knows it or not. <clears throat> See, we all want this dare-to-be-great opportunity. You run into this all the time with Christians, especially young Christians, that they want, they've got this like... Um, it's always, in fact, it's kind of humorous to me. They'll often say, hey, can you, um, can you help me figure out what my passion is? And I'm always like, well, apparently not. I mean, if you don't know what your passion is, then you don't have one. That's not, and by the way, that's not necessary. It's not a biblical mandate to feel things. It, it, here's, here what you have is we want this dare to be a great opportunity. See, we all want to kill a giant. We all want to kill a giant. But we don't want to just deliver bread and cheese to the front lines. Um, we all want to go toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar, or we think we do, but the truth is we don't develop the right type of character. We don't invest in the right types of disciplines to be a good candidate for those moments. It's fascinating how God seems to always reward the, the, those who are faithful with the small things to have the opportunity to be, be faithful in the big things. And rarely do you see someone just show up and be, have the opportunity to be faithful in some dare-to-be-great moment when the truth is they don't. Because truthfully, let's, let's, let's stop and be honest with ourselves here. If most of us were given a position to stand before Nebuchadnezzar, we would fail. We would quail in fear. We would become addicted to his, to his charisma. We would, not, we would fail because we have not created the right type of character and identity to be prepared for that. If we were given a chance to kill a giant, we probably would just stay up on the hilltop along with the rest of the army. We wouldn't go toe-to-toe. If we were given a chance before to stand before Pontius Pilate, we would just deny Christ three times. If we haven't developed that, that's what we face. We love the heroes, but are we faithful to be the kind of people who can be that type of hero when the time comes? We swear an oath that we will be better parents than our parents, we'll be a better spouse, we'll be a better something than someone else, but we fail to prepare for it in the meantime. We don't grow, we don't learn, we don't submit in the ways that might give us a shot at success if we actually ever did get that chance. We think we will shine in the big moment, even though we cheat and lie and focus on the wrong things and squeak by with the least effort that we can all the way up to it. And let me just tell you, that ain't how it works. If we don't have integrity in the small things, why do we think we will suddenly have the integrity in this big thing? We all think that's the case. And maybe we could fake it for a little while in some big, especially if it was a public thing. But the small things matter. We don't determine in our hearts to never cheat, and the chance to cheat comes along and we fall. What would we do if God gave us the chance to interpret a dream before the most powerful man in the world? Likely we wouldn't have any, we would never get the opportunity because we would still be eating the king's food. We would still be resenting our condition, whining and complaining about being kidnapped, not developing or growing friendships, not praying with these friends. And when the answer came, we would run straight to the king. We would not stop and thank God. And so God's probably not going to give us that answer in that moment. Understand, by the way, this is not merely a behavioral change. I hope that's clear in what I'm saying. This is not a behavioral change. This is an identity change. This is an identity understanding, living according to who we are. In this world, where do we find our purpose? Where do we find our value 
Where do we anchor their identity? You see, these four young men, their identity is utterly found in their God. It is utterly founded on Him. We're having empty wells sold to us day in and day out. A new video every few seconds, a new television show every couple of hours, a new, a new something constantly, and none of these things are necessarily bad, but they're empty, and if we invest all of our lives in them, then what do we have when the crisis comes? Not much. Where did they turn? They turned to God first, they prayed to Him, and then they took the time to thank Him because that's where all of their treasure is invested. It's not with Nebuchadnezzar, it's with Yahweh. It's with Adonai. It's with their God. That's where their everything is invested. So, of course, they're going to stop and thank Him. What a crazy picture this is in the midst of this. Therefore, now, finally, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Again, I think this is a young man having had a couple of years at the most of training. That's how desperate all these people are. This, I don't know, 13, 14, maybe year old, 15-year-old young man shows up. And Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king, to the king the interpretation. Man, Arioch doesn't have any idea what he's doing here. He has no idea what Daniel's going to do. He, doesn't, he can't even verify it. Daniel probably won't even tell him. Arioch's life is on the line too, apparently. 26, so the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king, declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar's name for him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Okay, so there's, there's some funny moments in the Bible. If you haven't caught this, there's some pretty funny moments. I've talked about the resurrection last week. I think there's, there's a weird humor to Jesus coming out of the tomb and no one's there. I, I think that's kind of funny. I think we get lots of funny moments with Jesus and the disciples where they are just clueless. They never have any idea what's going on. Um, and, and Jesus is telling them, beware the... the the bread of the Pharisees, beware that, you know, the leaven of the Pharisees, that that doesn't somehow infect you. And they go off and huddle up and decide, like, he's just frustrated with us because we forgot to bring lunch. And that, that, that's actually a true story. And so I think there's plenty of funny things in the Bible. Even though it's a weird, dark, setup kind of humor, I think when Jesus walks into the temple on the day uh, of Palm Sunday and, and walks in the temple and it says he looked around and seeing that it was late, went home. Like, I think there's a weird humor in that because all the people think he's going to declare himself king. I think this is funny. Here you go. Ready? So remember, Nebuchadnezzar is about to kill all these wise men because they can't, they can't do what he's told them to do. So the, the king declared to, to Daniel, his name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no. What? I mean, like, I, I think that's funny. I think Daniel, all of this trouble and Daniel's been brought in and Daniel says, no, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Now, I don't know how long a pause there is here. I don't know how much Daniel's willing to risk in this moment. Nope, no one could do this for you, king. So, there's that. I, again, I don't know. I've got to think it, it wasn't long. Um, this is a little bit of tweaking the lion's tail, I feel like. This is, this is Daniel going, nope, no one could do this. Now, he's got a point to make, and he's going to make it, and this is a point Daniel's going to continue to make throughout his life, no matter who he's facing. Okay, So he's going to make this point, but he makes this in a very backhanded way. Isaiah 46, there's a prophecy about almost this moment. 
Um, this is, this is the, the prophecy 46, uh, in Isaiah 46, 1 and 2, about the lords, the lords, the gods of Babylon. Bel, that's the title for um, Marduk, the king, the Lord, uh, head god. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. They are things you can carry, that you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. By the way, that's literally true. We now know archaeologically that, that they actually hauled Marduk through the, temp, through the main road every year is a big event <coughs> too. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. In this situation, it sounds like them, but the point that, that Daniel is making, oh, I'm sorry, are your gods and your gods magicians and wise people, are they failing you, Nebuchadnezzar? I'm sorry, is it true? Did your wise men tell you that no one and none of your gods and none of your people could answer this question? I'm just clarifying, is that where we are? Are we at a place where you now acknowledge no one could do this? But, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay down in this bed are. Wow. Notice that again, we want to see the book of Daniel, and I know there's a sense in which this is true, in which Daniel is the protagonist. Daniel does not see himself as the protagonist of his story. God is the protagonist of this story. No wise man, enchanter, or astrologer, meaning himself included. No one could do this. No one could do what the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. This is, this is significant. This is a big deal. When you, he's telling him, and he's kind of, honestly, I feel like he's kind of dragging this out a little bit too. To you, you laid in bed, you thought of what would come after this, and the one, this God, this God, in, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in these latter days. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. He who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. Nothing special about me. But in order that the interpretation may be, may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Notice, Daniel very, very much so sees himself as nothing but the messenger. God, Almighty God, the God of heaven. Do we, is that video going to be able to be played in a second? Okay, good. That, that the God of heaven has revealed something to Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't get it. Is that because of Nebuchadnezzar's poor relationship to the God of heaven? What, why does Nebuchadnezzar not get this mystery? We don't know. But thankfully... God has also, not only did he send this message, this mystery to Nebuchadnezzar, but he sent a, a messenger who could interpret that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. That's all. He wanted Nebuchadnezzar to have the message according to Daniel. Daniel's saying, listen, God in heaven wanted you to have this message. He wanted you to know about what was to come. He wanted you to know the future. And by the way, it is the future. We're still living in this dream. And I want him to see that. I want him to experience that. 
So I'm going to send in this dream, but I'm also going to send this messenger. By the way, for those who say, um, well, how come God doesn't just reveal himself perfectly to us? Why is it tough to have faith? Why do we have to do this? Why? I mean, it seems like God could just write the name Jesus Christ as Lord in the clouds and the sky, or the stars of the heaven could form that. Could he do that? Sure he could. But he's God, so he's not under any obligation to do it the way we would want him to do it. In his wisdom, he knows that the right way to handle this situation is to give Nebuchadnezzar the dream but then not give Nebuchadnezzar the instructions on how to interpret the dream, but instead to send a Hebrew boy to interpret that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Why? I don't know. I could guess at it, but I'm not God. My strategy skills die out way before his do. He's got a big picture in mind. He knows how everything touches everything else and knows how it plays out. So that's what we're dealing with. This is the case. God wants you to have this interpretation. He wants it to be made known to the king that you may know the thoughts of your own mind and to know what's coming. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up with what the actual dream is and the actual interpretation and Nebuchadnezzar's response to the interpretation, to what the dream means and to the interpretation, all of it. Here's what I want to do today, though. I want to end our time with just the dream. Now, I know you can, and I hope you are, skipping ahead to see what the dreams mean and what the interpretation of the dream is. Um, but, so I, I want this to be, I, I want you to get a picture of the dream. And, and a lot of times you, when you look up this dream, you still see still shots. And I think that's unfortunate because this dream is an action dream. There's an action to it. So this, this video takes like a minute. I don't, again, dreams are, you know, people tell us dreams are super, super short, no matter how long they seem to us. But, but so I'm going to, I'm going to pray, and then we will, we will have this, we will show this dream, and then we will have an invitation time um, when that's over, and then we'll, um, we'll actually introduce a new member to you today, um, and then we'll be done. So, let's run this dream. All right, there you go. Father, I pray that as, as each of our hearts is being prepared for what you have for us, as we discuss um, even, even some of the interpretation of that picture that's on that video, Lord, I pray that you would... Um, help us to appreciate, most importantly, who you are and what that means for us and for your creation and for us, especially as your chosen people adopted by you. I pray that we will respond first to your authority and that we will be faithful to listen to those authorities in our life that you have placed there. Um, Lord, I pray that as we live out this life worthy of the calling that you have given us, um, that it will truly be extraordinary and people will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Um, I pray your spirit will lead us in this time as we consider what you have for us. In your son's name.